This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. You can please open to Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 2. As we continue our series in this unique book, Esther is unique in the Bible and that is the only book where God is not mentioned. Ten chapters, 127 verses, and God is never named. And yet while he is a character who is not named, make no mistake, he is the author who is writing every detail of the story. The story of Esther is the story of God's unseen hand, directing, guiding, caring, and providing and delivering his people. I want to encourage you, if you've never read through the whole book of Esther, it won't take you long to do it. I'd encourage you to do it this coming week, and actually several times as we continue to go throughout this series. You'll be blessed. It really is meant to to be read in one sitting. And so I'd encourage you to go ahead and just read the whole book, get an overview and a picture of what's happening. Uh, If you were part of our email list, I emailed out a video that kind of gives an overview of that book. I hope you had a chance to watch it. It's about a nine-minute video. I think it will help you see more of these details and how they fit into the bigger story of what God is doing. But as we come to Esther chapter 2 today, we are going to meet two of the main characters, Mordecai and Esther. Now, normally, if you are familiar with this story, these people get held up as heroes, And they'll certainly do some heroic things later on in this book. But I want to give you a heads up that chapter 2 does not introduce them in a favorable light at all. No, in fact, we we meet them in Esther chapter 2 as people who, quite frankly, are a mess. We, We see them doing some things that they, no doubt, would have regretted later in life. I'm not sure who here has some things that they did that they now regret later in life. I think about how I decided in my wisdom of being an 18-year-old to bleach my hair before my graduate pictures of high school. It's a decision that I now regret. Pastor Matt actually asked if I had pictures to show us of that, and uh, no, all evidence has been destroyed. Um, There are some regrets you just don't want to live with. My wife regularly reminds me that if we knew each other in high school, there's no way we would have ended up together. Um, She would not have wanted to be with a loser like me. There are things that that, that we can regret, and some of those things we can't just laugh off, can we? There can be shame and guilt that we carry from past choices, and even consequences that we continue to live with. And sometimes these things aren't just things in the past, sometimes it's things we're dealing with still in the present day, where where we continue to feel the, the pull of sin's temptation so strongly. And the shame of our past can make us want to sell out and just give in in the present. We can feel paralyzed in our sin, unable to move on, disbelieving that we can change, wondering if God is now done with us. If you've ever felt that way, well, Esther too has something to say to you. Because as we work our way through this text, what we're going to see as we see Mordecai and Esther giving themselves to significant sin, we're also going to see in their sin that God's redemptive hand is at work. 
And so let me give you the big idea of this text that you have it in mind as we then go to read Holy Scripture together. Here's the big idea of Esther chapter 2. Even when your past sins catch up with you, or your present sins overcome you, God is still working redemption for you. Even when your past sins catch up with you, or your present sin overcomes you, God is still working redemption for you. I've entitled this morning's sermon, All Regrets and God's Redemption. Let's read together in Esther chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through verse 18. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai the son of Jeor, son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young men from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred. For Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into the king. Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since it was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shekazah the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her, And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, 
The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Praise God for his holy word. May it be with us now through the preaching of it. Would you bow your head with me in a word of prayer? O holy God, triune being from which all things have come into being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to you now and ask for your help. Would you help us to understand what you would have us to hear from your word today? Lord, you inspired this word to be written, and it carries authority as your very word into our lives. And so God, I pray that we would hear your word. I pray that you would speak to us. Lord, I pray for each person here that you would open the ears of their hearts, that they might hear your voice declaring your truth to them. Lord, I pray that you would help me in my weakness, Lord God, to be a faithful vessel in your hand by your grace. We need you in this time, so please come and be with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This morning we're going to be talking about our regrets and God's redemptions. We're going to look at this scripture in three parts. We're going to see when your sin catches up with you. We're going to see when your sin overcomes you. And then we're going to see how God is still working redemption for you. Let's look at the first part. When your past sin catches up with you. Verse 16 tells us the events of chapter 2 take place during the seventh year of King Ahasuerus' reign. If you remember, we talked about last week that the Greek name for King Ahasuerus is Xerxes. And so I don't have to keep saying that. I'm just going to start using his name Xerxes because that's just a whole lot easier to say. So if you remember, chapter 1 said that it was in the third year of Xerxes that those events were taking place. So in between chapters 1 and 2, there's a period of four years. In those four years, Xerxes has invaded Greece and has been rebuffed. He, he did not conquer all that land as he had hoped. And so he has returned home in de defeat. And he has come home to an empty palace. If you remember, we saw in chapter 1 that Queen Vashti had not complied with his request to come and pose for all his drunken men when he was throwing a feast. And so he decided to banish her. But here in chapter 2, he's starting to feel a little lonely. It's not surprising, having been out on the battlefield for four years, if he comes home, he probably did not want to look at another man. He wanted some female companionship. So he decides to make the first version of the show, The Bachelor, and get all these women together to compete for his affections. If you remember in chapter 1, we saw that in this book, about the deliverance of the Jewish people, it did not start by naming any Jewish people. But here in chapter 2, we see the first Jew named. What's interesting is we don't meet him by his Jewish name. In verse 5, we're introduced to Mordecai. Mordecai is a Persian name. Now, it's not uncommon for Jewish people living in foreign lands to have names that came from that foreign land. If you think about the book of Daniel, for example, you might remember that Daniel was given the Babylonian name Belshazzar. However, throughout that book of Daniel, how is he referred to? He's referred to in his Jewish name, Daniel, not his pagan Babylonian name. Here, though, we aren't ever told Mordecai's Jewish name. 
And I have to wonder if there's a point to that. Well, I think there is because the author is very clear to show us how, it, how Mordecai came to be in Susa. He, he doesn't want to leave that up to our imagination. He wants us to know how this Mordecai came to this capital of Persia. He works through Mordecai's lineage and says that he was part of those in verse 6 who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Je- Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. This is referring to events that happened in 586 B.C. when King Nebuchadnezzar came and conquered Israel. The Jewish prophet during that time, Jeremiah, he told the Israelite people why that had happened to them and what was going on. He didn't want them to be confused. He says, this is what is happening. For all their evil in forsaking me. They're forsaking God. They made offerings to other gods and worshipped the works of their own hands. The reason that the Jewish people had been conquered by Babylon was a sign of God's judgment against them for abandoning him. They had abandoned Yahweh, the one true God, and instead began to worship the false gods of other nations. And Jeremiah, if you notice, he gave us the motivation for why they did so. They wanted to worship the work of their own hands, the gods that they had made. You see, when you can't see God, and you can't control God, it's easy just to make up other gods that you can see and you can't control. And a God you can control is also quite conveniently a God you don't have to obey. Because you can pick and choose what you do and don't like. You can fashion them into any way that you do like. That's what the ancient Jews decided to do. And I have to wonder, are we much different today? Isn't it so easy to cut out parts of the Bible that we don't like? We just want to hold through a whole series called Untwisting the Truth, where we looked at different ways that our culture has compromised biblical truth. And sadly, so many Christians are buying into the cultural narrative. Because it's easier sometimes to cut out parts of the Bible that aren't convenient and comfortable. And to remake God into any way that seems right to me. Just like these ancient Jews, we can put ourselves over God and try to remake God into someone a little more palatable to our own tastes. But when they had abandoned the one true God, they found out that their worship of false gods did not deliver the better life that they had hoped for. Because when their enemies showed up, they needed a real God on their side, not the counterfeit gods that they had made. But they had abandoned God. And their false gods were no match against their real enemies, so they became a conquered people. They're here in exile because of their sin and rejecting God. But in 538 B.C., and I know it's a lot of history, uh, but we can't understand the story and what's going on here if we don't understand the historical setting in which this is written. This is not fiction. These are historical facts. In 538 B.C., the, the Persian king Cyrus was moved by God to allow the Jewish exiles to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And so this is what we read in Ezra chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Notice, this is not just permission for them to return to their homeland. We need to remember that for the Jewish people, their homeland was also the promised land. It was not just a piece of real estate in the Middle East. 
but the place that God had told them to go and live as his holy people. It was the place where the temple was to be dwelt, where, where God's dwelling place would come and he would be his representation where heaven was meant to touch earth and the holy of holies. This is not just land, this is sacred land. See, when they were exiled, it was a sign of God's judgment on them. But being able to return is an invitation to once again come into God's presence, to once again receive God's mercy and his grace. But not all the Jews returned. Some, like Mordecai, preferred to continue living in the land of exile. They had become so ingrained in these foreign lands that they had forgotten about their true home. They had become so part of Persia that they had forgotten they were supposed to be living in Jerusalem. And I don't have time to get into this. This isn't my sermon for this morning, but I do have to ask the question. I wonder how many of us have so gotten caught up into things here that we've forgotten that this is not our home. We were made for another place. This is not our home. So why are we chasing the comforts of this world like it is? That's another sermon for another time. Mordecai had lost his sense of where he belonged. And his decision to stay in Susa had now come back to haunt him. Because while this edict to gather all the young women went out to all the provinces of King Xerxes' kingdom, it was no doubt most thoroughly carried out in Susa, the place where the king was living. And so could Esther have been found if she'd been back in Jerusalem? Perhaps. But here in Susa, she was an easy target. Here in Susa, it was a guarantee that she wouldn't be miss. You see, the sins that had led Israel to become exiles and Mordecai's sin to choose to stay in the land of exile, that sin had caught up with him as he saw his adopted daughter Esther being led away. See, we like to think that sin can stay contained. We like to think that you know, if we, if we commit sin and there's no immediate repercussions, that, that we can falsely think we have things under control, but sin always has a way of catching up with us. And I wonder who here today, your, your past has caught up with you in certain ways. And when that happens, it can be terrifying. Mordecai is certainly scared because we see in verse 10 that he tells Esther not to reveal her heritage. He is scared that he'll be found out and what that might mean for him. So what do you do when your past catches up with you? Well, before answering that question, let's look at part two. When your present sins overcome you. The king's guys show up to bring Esther into this beauty pageant. Now, let's not be confused at what's happening here. We might think that she had no choice and feel moved to compassion. And on one hand, we should feel some sense of compassion. It's certainly an intimidating thing to have the king's men show up at your door telling you to come with them. But let's not forget that chapter 2 is taking place after chapter 1. And we're meant to read these two things in contrast. What happened when the king's men showed up to Queen Vashti and asked her to come and do something for the king? She refused. She stood up. She was unwilling to compromise her dignity to come be with some pagan, loose king. She said, no way. But Esther here is saying, sure, I'll go your way. 
there's a contrast that's, perfectly, that's purposely being set up here between Vashti and between Esther. And what's really interesting is Esther is the Jewish person. She's the one who should have had even more moral convictions than Vashti, this Persian. And yet here she is, totally willing to go. And not only is she willing to go, but did you notice how many times it said throughout this chapter? It said in verse 9, it says in verse 15, so in the end of verse 17, she worked to win favor. Over and over again, she was winning favor. She was winning favor. We need to understand, those are active words in the Hebrew as they're being written. It doesn't mean that just favor is coming upon her. It means she's doing stuff to get in people's good graces. Esther is not resisting anything that is happening. She's not being like Vashti at all. She's going all out and trying to become queen, doing whatever it takes. Now, we might think, well, good for her. Nothing wrong with a Jewish girl making it big. But here's what we need to remember. God had commanded his people not to marry foreigners. In numerous places in, 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 in their holy laws, in the book of Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, and Joshua. And also, let's not be naive as to what's going on in this beauty pageant. The women were beautifying themselves to go spend a night with the king. I don't think that means they were learning to play some board games at a slumber party. Esther is working very hard to get ready to sleep her way to the top. And all the while she's doing this, too, as we're told twice in this chapter, make sure that no one knows that she's actually a Jew. Friends, we can't miss what is happening here. Theologian Ian Duguid comments on this when he writes, Esther ended up married to an uncircumcised pagan and virtually cut off from the community of faith, successfully pretending not to be a child of the true and living God. Her enviable progress in one world, the world of the empire of Ahasuerus, came at the cost of completely suppressing her identity as a citizen of the kingdom of God. Friends, Esther's going to go on to do some amazing things, but part of what we need to see in this book is we're meant to see her transformation. And so we can't sanitize this part of her story because then we're going to miss out on the power of what God's doing through her entire story. The story of Esther is not a story of amazing people doing amazing things. No, it's a story of broken people, of sinful people making a mess of things, and yet through all of that, God is still at work. Esther does not start out being depicted as any kind of hero, but instead, in very scandalous terms, being shown to be a sinner. And I have to wonder if at any point Esther looked back and was like, how did I get to this place? Like, like I have to wonder if Esther didn't, I don't think she woke up one day trying to sell herself out and sleep her way to the top. Maybe when the king's men showed up at her door, she's like, well, I'm just going to go. It seems like a good opportunity. I'm just going to enjoy myself a little bit. And then she goes, and she's having a good time. And then all of a sudden, she's like, hey, if I'm here, I might as well win this thing, no matter what I have to do. We aren't told of how she came to this place of being completely overcome by her sin, but do we need to be told? Can't we see in our own lives? That whenever we give sin an inch, it just keeps pushing and pushing and taking and taking. I wonder who here has been 
so overcome with sin sometimes. You look back and like, man, how did I get into this place? We rarely wake up making a mess of things. It's usually little choices of compromise over time that end up into everything going awry. Friends, the sins that we should be most concerned about are the sins that right now we are least concerned about. That little thing in your life that you keep indulging that you think is no big deal, that could be the very tool that Satan wants to use to undo you. We should never take sin lightly. Little choices of compromise always lead to major falls over time. Esther here has become overcome by her sin. So what do you do? When your past sins catch up with you, when your present sins overcome you, what do you do? Here's what you do. You need to know that God, even in those things, God is still working redemption for you. See, the Jewish people should not have been in Susa. That was their sin. Mordecai should not have stayed in Susa. That was his sin. Esther should not have gone to be with the king, denied her faith, committed sexual immorality. Those were her sins. But through all this sin, God is still working his saving plan. You see, the Jewish people have been conquered. And even though they're allowed to return, we see that many of them, like Mordecai, didn't. And so really, if history had continued on its course, there's a very good chance that the Jewish people would have died out, not through annihilation, but just through assimilation. Mordecai and Esther are really representative of what's going on largely throughout the Jewish nation in that time. The Jewish nation was on a trajectory to just be absorbed into Persia and lost in the annals of history. But as we saw last week, the preservation of the Jewish people is key to God's redemptive plan because he had promised that the Messiah, that the rescuer, that the Christ would come through the Jewish people. And so if the Jews had been assimilated into the Persian Empire, if they become just another people group lost in history, then the promised rescuer would never have come into being. And there'd be no defeat of sin, there'd be no forgiveness of sin, no, no, no conquering of Satan, no eternal life. God's kingdom would have been lost forever. But God won't let that happen. So God allows the sins of Mordecai and Esther to put them in a position to experience it. Their sins would put them in position to experience God's deliverance. And this deliverance would preserve and galvanize the Jewish people and secure the bloodline for God's promised Redeemer to come. You see, God does not sin. God cannot sin. Nor can he tempt or cause anyone to sin. Right? James 1, 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. We are 100% responsible for the sinful choices we make. There's no one you can blame for your choice to sin except the person you see in the mirror. But while we are 100% responsible, God is at the same time 100% providential. He is in control of all things at all times. And so that means that even wickedness is under his providence. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. 
Friends, even the wicked and the trouble they cause, the sinful things they do, even they are being ruled over by the purposeful hand of God. See, people are 100% responsible, but God's also 100% in control. And those two things might seem like they are an intention of paradox, but friends, this really should be a paradox that we praise God for because it's the paradox that makes our salvation possible in Jesus. Where have we seen more sin done than the sin that was done against Christ? Who has had more evil done than, than Jesus? He was the best of friends who one of his friends chose to betray and hand over to a mob that wanted him dead. He was the only innocent person who ever lived who people chose to sinfully accuse and condemn to death through an unjust and corrupt corpse. He was the one who had come for the good of the people, but the people sinfully shout out, crucify him, when the governor Pilate asked what should be done with Jesus. And so even though Jesus was complete purity, he was stripped naked and beaten with whips and hung on a piece of wood and nailed to the cross like an animal being butchered. And so this is why the Apostle Paul, he looks out at the crowd of Pentecost and he leaves no doubt as to who's responsible for Jesus' death. He says, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Jesus was a victim of mankind's sin. Sin they are 100% responsible for doing. But in Judas the betrayer and Pilate the governor and the Jewish court of Sanhedrin and the crowd and even you and I and our sinful choices that necessitate a sacrifice for sin needing to be made and all those things where we are 100% responsible, they 100% come from humans' free will, yet they're also 100% happening according to God's will because the entire context of Acts chapter 2, verse 23 says this, Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see, you killed him and God delivered him. You're responsible and God's in control. See, God used people's sin to put Jesus in a position to save us. Friends, what we should be seeing here is that God is so great that nothing can work against his purposes. Everything must serve the Lord, even the sin that gets committed against the Lord. So here's what this means for us. In Mordecai and Esther, we should see our own frail, sinful human hearts. And we should see the hope of God's saving purposes. If you struggle with regrets from your past, if you feel tempted to just give up in the present. If sin seems overwhelming to you and you are wondering if God is done with you, listen, friends, your sin might be part of your story, but God is too much of a savior to let it be the end of your story. And so your past regrets or your present struggles, the very things that you think disqualify you are what God wants to use in your life to bring you closer to him. See, sometimes you need to know you have a burden in order to appreciate your need for a burden lifter. Sometimes you need to know the enslavement of bondage in order to desire the freedom of a liberator. 
I'm not saying we should make excuses for our sin. I'm certainly not saying that we should hard-heartedly give ourselves over to sin. But what Esther 2 is telling us is that we should never believe that we've been defeated by our sin. Because no matter what you have done, no matter how much you have done, and no matter how long you've been doing it, there is one who can cleanse you from sin's guilt. There is one who can redeem you and rescue you from sin's temptation. There is one who can free you from sin's slavery. Because there is one who came to save you from sin's judgment. Friends, there is one who has made a way. There is one who is the way. And he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is in control of all things at all times. So that even our sinfulness cannot sever us from his faithfulness. But instead serve to lead us into his arms of forgiveness. Friends, what I'm trying to tell you is that there is one, and his name is Jesus Christ. His name is Jesus Christ. And when you come to this church, you won't hear any other name. We are Christ Church because he is the one. He is the only one who can redeem, rescue, reconcile, and restore lost and hopeless sinners like you and me. And so we should never wallow in regret. Nor should we ever fear the struggles of our present. Because when our past catches up with us and sin seems to be overcoming us, you need to know God is still working redemption for us. He is the one who is so much of a savior that he can work sinlessly through our sin to draw us closer to him. I want to tell you a story and then I'm going to wrap up. There was a man who was at a party and decided to drink heavily and then made that choice even worse by deciding to get behind a wheel. He drives for a bit and in his foolish state, he ends up wrapped around a tree. He wakes up in the emergency room with wrists so badly broken that they had to do surgery and install metal plates to hold his hands together. He weeps bitterly, knowing that he had done something so wrong that he had messed up his life forever. He was a carpenter who would no longer be able to go about his craft and trade. But then the doctor came in and said, well, be careful you don't cry too much. Because we have to do some prep, some blood work and prep for your surgery. And on your blood work, we caught some abnormalities there were early indicators for cancer. And because of that, we were able to find the cancer and get it out before it could grow and do you any damage. And so when you look at those scars on your wrists, you need to remember that they saved your life. And friends, what I'm trying to tell you today is that as you go through life, your sin might leave you scarred. And maybe you're even here today with some fresh scars on you, some, some sins that you're currently struggling with. But friends, what I want you to do is, is not look at those scars and let them tell you the wrong story. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, or today, if you would put your faith in Jesus Christ for the first time, then the scars that you are seeing are not signs of your defeat, but are trophies of God's future grace. See, when our past catches up with us and sin overcomes us, God is still working redemption 
for us. He's so great a Savior that even our regrets are part of His plan of redemption. So what do we do in response to this? As the old hymn says, Come ye sinners, weak and wounded, sick and sore, come to Jesus, full of pity, love and power. What do we do with this text? We say, I will arrive and go to Jesus. And he will embrace me in his arms. And in the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are 10,000 charms. What do we do with this text? We come to Jesus. We don't allow our sin to keep us from him. But instead allow our sin to drive us deeper into his loving arms. We come to Jesus. And allow the scars that are on us to remind us of the scars that he bore for us on the cross. And so we don't stay paralyzed by our past or fearful of our present. We stay hopeful in the forgiveness that we have, the forgiveness that we are experiencing, and the forgiveness that is forever ours in Jesus Christ. We come to Jesus Christ Church. That's what we do. We don't come being perfect people. We come loving our perfect Savior. Let's bow our heads in prayer.